This is episode 10 of Functional First Podcast, where we speak with leading experts in the field of functional health. I'm Katie Yamamoto from Functional Media, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Alejandro Loriega Claraco on the neurofunctional acupuncture approach. Thank you for letting us interview you today. Can you give us a brief background about who you are and your experience in sports medicine? Sure. My name is Alejandro Loriega Claraco. I'm a sports medicine specialist by training. I train in Spain and I came to, uh, to sports medicine out of my interest in uh, human movement and exercise physiology and my own participation in, in sports. I came to Canada to broaden my exercise physiology abilities. I did some research at the Human Performance Laboratory and early on in my career I was uh, working with uh, high-performance athletes. I was a physician of uh, the professional basketball team in my town and I discovered quickly that I needed other tools to help uh, the athletes and that's how I I started learning manual medicine. I studied with uh, chiropractors in uh, France then I started exploring the world of acupuncture and little by little I built a whole background in manual medicine and I've learned pretty much all the techniques that they are out there. So that's in a nutshell. And can you give us an overview of how your approach of treatment has changed over the years? My approach originally was very, very standard. I believe in the categorization of pathology, which I have learned in medicine. You study disease and you classify disease in groups uh, and you define disease in very specific anatomical, histological terms. However, I discovered that in, at least in uh, musculoskeletal medicine, that categorization was not uh, enough to help me understand these functions, particularly what we can call non-acute injuries, insidious onset problems. And little by little, I had to shift my my model from a mechanistic uh, structure base to more of a a neurofunctional metabolic uh, based on what we call the systems uh, approach to biology, where the elements themselves are important, but what's more important is the connectivity between these elements and how the system operates as a system. And that's also something that contemporary physics and sociology and other fields of knowledge have incorporated systems theory. And I think that's that's where I took a lot of what I've developed later on. And how did you come to use acupuncture? Well, like many other practitioners I know, it was by a mix of curiosity, fear about the results, and necessity, as I mentioned. So I met the different people who were practicing. They had trained in the traditional Chinese medicine. It didn't resonate with me, so I, despite the results that I saw that was producing, I kind of parked until I met Dr. Joseph Wong, here in Canada who was practicing a neuroanatomical approach that made total sense to me and that initiated a very quick adoption of, of the method but with a totally uh, neurofunctional approach uh, versus the traditional meridians etc. And then quickly I started exploring the, the possibilities of, of the needles and the electricity seeing incredible results 
and then just exploring and, and later on uh, organizing a system that I've been sharing with people for the last 20 years at the McMaster University Contemporary Acupuncture Program. And can you describe the neurofunctional approach and what makes it unique? Well, um, we've discovered in the last uh, 30 years that the, the nervous system, unlike the classical view of uh, cables connecting uh, you know, receptor side with the, with the spinal cord and with the brain, these neurons are really specialized glands that secrete a number of chemical substances that we can call neurotransmitters, neuropeptides, that have receptors not only on neural cells, but also on other cells of the economy. And this, this glandular secretory function reaches not only the, the neural network, but also can have uh, effects uh, via uh, neurohumoral uh, mechanisms to the endocrine and the immune system. So this contemporary view of the nervous system as, as this connector messenger between not just receptor sites and fields in the brain, but also as, as an organizer, as a coordinator of activity, and uh, particularly in the motor system, which is the, the core of what I deal with, it has incredible a level of sophisticated functionality that we are just starting to understand uh, nowadays. So proprioception, interoception, uh, also the, the relation between the autonomic nervous system, the visceral networks, the, the vascular system. So th this is the real focus of what we do with the, the needles. We reach this uh, complex multidimensional system at the local level where we put the needles, where we now know that multiple changes, chemical changes take place uh, without entering in many technical details. Uh, we, we know that those changes decrease nociceptive signaling, but also modify the biochemical environment uh, where the receptor fields are in a favorable manner. Also, signals reach the spinal cord and then modulate uh, what happens there, particularly at the integration of nociceptive signals at the dorsal horn. And that there are also effects even above the brain stem that uh, affect many parts of the brain, sensory cortex, areas of the cortex that control thought, and particularly the very important limbic system that uh, obviously is the big controller of uh, sympathetic nervous system activity as well as the origin of the endocrine uh, activity via the hypothalamus pituitary axis. So this is the focus of our work. What is represented here in this uh, diagram by uh, the, the connection between a receptor field and then the different pathways that convey that uh, information to the brainstem and the different parts of the brain and then the efferent responses that are created, that some of them neurological, some of them neurohumoral. So I don't know if I explained it. Yes, you did. So can you give us a specific example of how you would structure this approach when working with a patient? Yes. So based on, on this model that I just described, mm -hmm. in which uh, the nervous system has a property, the ability to control its own activity. We call this property neuromodulation. 
and we've learned a lot about neuromodulatory mechanisms. The approach is multiple. First, categorization of the problem. We, we're going to talk about that and then we'll talk about the therapeutic approach. So the, the first original approach that, that I use is not to look at dysfunction as a pathological self-contained entity that can be defined in, in narrow anatomical histological terms. Why? Because we know that the human body is adaptable, is constantly adapting, particularly adapting to gravitational field, adapting to uh, reaction forces that are generated uh, through movement. And these adaptations, which we can observe in the normal development of a human being, from the baby crawling, strengthening certain muscle groups, then when it's strong enough, it starts uh, standing, then it starts walking in a not very coordinated manner, then that evolves into more coordinated. And it takes many years to fully wire all this complexity. And of course, along the way, the system is capable of adapting to deficits. Deficits, particularly in uh, motor neuromotor deficits, uh, not all the time we have access to 100% of our muscular capabilities. And these adaptations, I believe, are at the core of many of the observed dysfunctions. Of course, we like to use something we call the pyramid of function. We use the pyramid of function, of movement function, in which we understand movement as the end result of an integration of every level of uh, physiology, uh, starting with the metabolic, metabolic at the two levels, intermediary metabolism, how we acquire the basic constituents that, that we need for uh, energy production, for anabolism, that, that would be digestion, absorption, then the inter intercellular metabolism, which will determine the capability of producing energy by the cells. All that with a properly functioning nervous system is what makes the mobile parts, the biomechanical part, operate under, of course, the control of behavior. And these areas are mutually interdependent and influence each other. Therefore, it's impractical and incorrect to use a singular pathology-based approach when, for instance, frequent occurrence, uh, deficit in the energy pathways due to a little bit of iron deficit in young female individuals, that immediately is going to impair the way the nervous system operates, which is going to impair the coordination of the mobile parts. And if we think that, that a problem is mechanical because it has a mechanical dimension, and we put our effort and attention on that dimension, we're missing, literally, the point completely because at the core, that was a metabolic problem. So our approach, we call it neurofunctional, but in, in actuality, it should be neuro-metabolic, mechanical, uh, behavioral, because you have to analyze every level. And in different instances, you have to put your effort in one level or another. So the first, the first part of the answer is that diagnostically, we don't try to narrowly label a movement disorder according to a pre-existing archetypal classification. We simply describe 
the levels of dysfunction that we find through the history, uh, anatomy exam, uh, laboratory tests, everything, and functional testing. And then we select, based on that analysis, what are the most uh, important targets for that particular case that we can use in order to restore the ability of the system to readapt. Because as, as we mentioned before, any movement disorder is a manifestation of a maladaptation or an unsuccessful adaptation. Now, how do we do that? And that's the second part. Well, we have a team approach that's part of contemporary medicine. Nobody can do everything. Nobody can do a full metabolic profile, a full neurological exam, a full biomechanical analysis, a full psychoemotional uh, uh, analysis. We need teams. And uh, as part of that, well, we have a network of uh, excellent practitioners that uh, support us. So in our history and uh, examination of the case, we identify that there is a possible metabolic dimension. We send this person to either a doctor, an naturopathic doctor, for a metabolic profile. The part that we, we do, when I say we, I mean all the practitioners that practice uh, neurofunctional electroacupuncture and manual techniques, well, we do exactly that. We try to identify what are the, the disconnections between the different elements of the nervous system and then with the use of uh, the acupuncture needles and the electricity targeting the specific receptor fields and targeting the specific uh, neurons, we try to restore that connectivity. That's the number one, in my experience, reason for the failure of the system to adapt, lack of connection. And this we can call segmental uh, neuromotor inhibition as a lack of uh, other terminology because not even universally yet recognized. But in uh, clinical practice, that's at the core of the factors contributing to maintaining a dysfunction, regardless of the origin, regardless of the fact that there was a structural problem, a muscle tear, or there is a degenerative problem at the joint or at the tendinous uh, attachment. Regardless of that, what perpetuates dysfunction is this neurofunctional dysregulation and disconnection. So in our experience, when we use electroacupuncture and reconnect the parts of the system, the system responds on real time with an incredible change in performance that usually is enough to then correct the pain problem, the pain experience, which usually is uh, secondary at that point in non-acute injuries, is secondary to this uh, dysregulation of the nervous system. So. Can you give a specific example of the different levels that you would use, say, for someone with a sprained ankle? Okay, so we will at every level of clinical presentation, we will try to identify what is the current situation of the body. If there is an ongoing tissue process, we would then try to support the system to complete the healing of that. That is only 15% of our practice because acute injuries, uh, and that's the easiest part. For that, we would uh, use an approach that would 
try to minimize the nociceptive signaling from the affected part by quickly changing the biochemical environment. Most pain is chemical, is non-mechanical, so the disruption of structures just releases different chemicals that then uh, stimulate the nociceptors. So trying to change that and uh, with you know, a specific uh, a technical approach. At the same time, we want to regulate the sympathetic nervous system because it's, it's the big controller of the vasomotor tone and the, therefore the perfusion and that's what's compromised in any case, uh, acute or chronic. So we would do something locally something on receptor sites that are relevant to the uh, existing problem, symptom or a structural uh, dimension. And then we would address the levels of the nervous system where those messages are processed, which at the spinal cord we call the segmental levels. And uh, also we would try to uh, support the ability of the supraspinal levels, the brain and associated areas, to further modulate signals, uh, sensory signals, and to produce good motor commands that will allow the normal function of the part. So it's a triple approach. We go to the receptor side locally, we go to the segments of the spinal cord, usually via posterior primary RMI, although we can use another uh, approach, we can go on the contralateral side and use the same nerves uh, that go to the same segments. Uh, there are different variations on the approach. And finally, for the central or the supraspinal level, we use um, a combination of things. It can be a stimulation of areas like the ear or areas over the head and a stimulation of distal areas that at low frequency that have proven to produce neurohumoral responses centrally that are valuable for this global modulation of pain, as well as the modulation of the sympathetic nervous system and by extension of the endocrine system, particularly the hypothalamus pituitary axis. So if you want to, we can talk more in detail, technical, but this is the global, mm -hmm. the global approach. And how would that approach differ for a persistent pain case? The first thing I have to confess is that we don't focus on pain. We don't focus on pain for many reasons. The main one is that even though we understand pain is an alarm signal, the meaning of this alarm signal is very different in our view of the problem than uh, what I learned in medical school. In general, we interpret pain as an indication of a, either a structural problem or an inflammation. However, scientific evidence proves that that's not the case. Most pain problems are not inflammatory in nature and uh, many pain problems don't have a, a hard structural underlying problem. So the first discussion that, that uh, we would need to have is uh, the contemporary view of pain, which in a nutshell for non-acute uh, injuries or non-cancer pain, pain is the result of uh, dysfunction of the nervous system in which the, the nerves have, uh, particularly the nerves that contribute to 
the pain experience, which are the nociceptive pathways, um, have been affected in their, in their secretory function by irritant factors that are not structural in nature, such as uh, what we call intervertebral dysfunction. So the mere fact that uh, we don't have a good function between vertebral segments, that irritates the body of these neurons that live very close to the vertebral column. And then these neurons secrete substances on their peripheral fields that change their environment and make them now lower the threshold for depolarization. And this nociceptive uh, activation that's self-inflicted uh, in response to, let's say, a proximal issue is the beginning of most insidious onset pain problems. And uh, therefore, there's nothing to fix in terms of a structure. What we need to do is, once again, we need to clean the peripheral receptor side we need to decrease the amount of uh, irritants uh, to that uh, particular group of neurons by improving uh, perfusion and motor activity, which are the, the two biggest modulators of, of pain, are good blood flow uh, of, of the uh, receptor fields and the, the neurons themselves, and movement, because movement generates uh, an enormous amount of non-noxious information that modulates the activity of the spinal cord. And uh, simply by doing that, which is also proven by, by science, even in cases of chronic pain, when people are forced and encouraged to move, the result is that their pain, even in cases of chronic sensitization, decreases uh, significantly. If the person hasn't reached that level of uh, centralization of pain, then it can disappear completely, which is our experience. So we don't treat pain, rather we treat the environment of the uh, neural network and we encourage the optimization of uh, neuromotor function as the number one modulator of good segmental activity. And that in, in turn produces this, uh, this modulation of the pain and an improvement of function simultaneously. So that's our approach. There's a lot of research studies that cite the lack of quality evidence to support acupuncture and its use in treating pain. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, the, the, the word evidence is, um, is a word that, that needs to be discussed in detail. I have, we're in a library and I have numerous books, uh, some written by physicists, some written by biologists, books from evolutionary biology, from uh, other areas. Uh, I have a book there called uh, Statistical Lies as well. So, in a nutshell, the main problem of contemporary research is the lack of clarity in the definition of uh, what is treated. As I just described for you, for instance, there is nobody testing that particular approach. Unfortunately, acupuncture has been tested mostly from the standpoint of the traditional methodology. So what is being tested is one version one approach. 
not the ability of the neurostimulation techniques, what we call now, I call functional neuromodulation techniques. So functional neuromodulation techniques would be all the techniques that try to leverage these well-known existing mechanisms of uh, self-regulation of the nervous system. From that standpoint, there's a lot of high-quality research in animal models, particularly proving that neurostimulation produces a vast array of responses that are physiologically measurable. What's uh, missing is to bridge the gap between that high quality. Uh, as I said, for instance, yesterday I was doing a search and there are 5,000 articles with the word acupuncture in the title or the keywords uh, published in a subset of journals uh, since 2007. So in the last nine years alone, 5,000 papers, and believe me, many of those papers have very good quality compared to any other field of medicine. Again, we have a translation and problem. One thing is to have good quality, basic research, animal models. And another thing is to apply that in clinical practice with a level of certainty uh, that uh, comes from uh, repeated uh, a statistical analysis pooling of that approach. So what we need is this transactional research. Uh, the, the current clinical research is very poor, a very poor quality at every level because it's using a model that is obsolete. It's using a, an archetypal model, is classifying disease as entities, for instance, low back pain. You cannot pool 10 individuals with low back pain in the same study because you're comparing 10 different individuals. There's nothing, nothing. A symptom is not enough to constitute a characterological feature that's enough to justify to pull that in, in a statistical, for a statistical analysis. So this is the, the failure. Randomized controlled trials became very popular as, as a great tool to study pharmacological interventions because of the easiness of comparing a true intervention with a so-called placebo intervention. However, that is not the case with most movement disorders, particularly pain problems, where simply a different degree of sensitization, regardless of where the area of the pain, it changes completely. So a low back pain, that has uh, a deeper level of spinal sensitization or a low back pain with, uh, with a, a higher degree of uh, supraspinal sensitization cannot be compared. And we don't have currently methods to quantitatively or even qualitatively uh, pull together similar clinical presentations. Therefore, the practitioner has the challenge uh, so we need this transactional research. Now, even if we had that, even if we have that and we have that for other areas of medicine, we still have the, the other translational problem. Now, you have to extract something that's been done in a standardized manner and see how that applies or not to your particular patient. That is what the original intent of Professor Sachs uh, by the way, from McMaster University, was when proposing uh, 
evidence-based medicine, which was to use the best available current evidence. But the best available current evidence uh, is, for many years, is going to be more based on uh, experience than in anything else, because that transitional change has to be done by an intelligent practitioner. And for that, we first need a new models for the definition of the problems, new models to pull together things and apply statistical analysis, and then methodology that has uh, good feedback to translate that into individual practice. And this is the current uh, challenge of, of medicine. More so, uh, I think, in musculoskeletal medicine. We just finished a decade of uh, musculoskeletal medicine by the WHO. It finished in 2010. They focus one decade on uh, these problems because this is the number one area that's consuming uh, healthcare resources in, in the world. And we still haven't, haven't found. So what, what to do? I think what to do is to take a proactive uh, approach. Advances in clinical practice never came uh, from uh, research, is the other way around. They come from practitioners and then that gets validation with research. So I think there are many uh, groups in the world now uh, exploring these more functional open architecture models. And in a few years, I think we're going to see the beginning of a new uh, research approach in which we're going to start measuring things from, uh, from a systems standpoint. And we're not going to use narrow categories uh, that are either syndrome-based or structure-based. You briefly mentioned traditional Chinese acupuncture. Can you explain how your approach is different? First of all, can you give us just a background on traditional Chinese acupuncture? Well, in a nutshell, traditional Chinese acupuncture, which developed over uh, hundreds of, of years, is, uh, is a mixed of, uh, of many things. It has um, a lot of qualitative approach, uh, which uh, out of necessity, like all original medical systems, when you don't know and you observe uh, things, you have to explain them to the best of your ability. So the, the explanations that clinicians originally uh, allocated to the dysfunctions that they observed uh, were based on, uh, on paradigmatic models that are not physiology-based. Uh, they were based on um, other things that were known uh, at the time. You know, what animated the human body for the Chinese was qi, for the Greeks was the, the force of nature, the vis medicatrix nature, etc. For the Indians was the prana. Now we know physiology. So the, the biggest difference is that traditional Chinese medical model like traditional Western medical model are uh, non-evolutionary in nature because they are paradigmatic. So paradigmatic means that you, uh, you take a, a framework and you apply it. And because that framework is rigidly defined, you cannot continue to, to evolve. Now we are in a, in a revolution and uh, we know physiology, we know neurophysiology, and we can do these functional neuromodulation techniques in a very uh, physiological manner. 
and that that's the main difference that our current system is not yet completed it's not 100% right it's just a tool that will allow us to continue to uh, help individuals with these problems by better understanding the true nature of, of their change. So as I said, the studies in the last decade with the microdialysis needle, where we've explored in detail the biochemistry of the receptor side, that is a breakthrough in history. That's invaluable. We can no longer justify using metaphoric models to explain uh, pain and say, well, there is a congestion of blood or chi or, or uh, yellow bile as, as the Greek model. We cannot say that, but we can say, oh, they are biochemical changes secondary to specific secretions of this neuron. And these secretions include substance P, calcitonin gene-related peptide, that they are vasoactive substances and produce leakage of the vessels that uh, puts uh, proteins and liquid in that environment that creates uh, trophic changes. And those trophic changes are measurable uh, manually and also justify the existence of increased sensitivity. So we understand the process of sensitization and so on and so forth. The better we understand the true physiological underlying mechanisms, the better equipped we'll be to encourage the, the changes that will uh, shift the performance of the body from a dysfunctional to a functional. So this is, this is the, main, the main difference. I think it's time to be truly scientific and not just for those practicing traditional uh, medicine, but, but for those practicing traditional everything, traditional physiotherapy, traditional Western medicine. We need to embrace what physics have already embraced. It's a systems approach, it's, it's um, a truly open architecture approach. And as uncomfortable as this is going to be, uh, because we're going to lose the illusion of certainty that's given by the former archetypal approaches. And that's why people have difficulty moving forward in all fields, in my experience, because the feeling of certainty is very intellectually soothing while operating in a black box uh, environment is a lot more uncomfortable. But we have to be humble and accept that as practitioners, our uh, job is not to achieve certainty, but to facilitate uh, changes that are going to improve uh, the quality of life of our patients. Uh, that's, that's my take on that. Okay. And so you noted the differences between the two approaches. Are there any similarities? Well, um, differences at the conceptual level. Then those differences uh, at the technical level as well are very many from the use of electricity that not all practitioners have uh, embraced, uh, that in contemporary neurofunctional approaches, we're talking about electro uh, neurostimulation. So obviously similarities are, are many because archetypal and, and paradigmatic models are based on observation. So observation contains, contains truth. When uh, ancient people look at the skies for the first time and they saw stars, they didn't understand what the stars were, but they observed true entities that they call the stars. 
Now, it took many, many centuries uh, until we learn what really a star is and the different kinds of stars and what distance really the, the stars were. They were not all in one plane hanging in a transparent uh, sphere. They, they are millions of kilometers apart. So this is a good example to understand similarities. So astrology and astronomy have similarities in, in, in the stand, from the standpoint that both look at the sky uh, and see the same elements, but the understanding of what you're looking at, the explanations to the phenomena that are observed, so a solar eclipse, a lunar eclipse, until a few centuries ago we didn't have a good explanation and, and there were all kinds of wrong explanations. So that exactly happens in, in medicine until we know, until we know what's the intimate mechanism that's producing something is all speculation. And if we look at the uh, at what is being published, it's, it's agreed upon that over 80% of what's published today will be proven uh, inaccurate tomorrow. Therefore, we cannot accept that there is an untouchable part of science. We have to accept that all knowledge is provisional and final knowledge will not be achieved uh, easily in any field of, of uh, human endeavor. And I know in the traditional Chinese approach, it's focused on meridians and the neurofunctional approach uses some of those same points. So is there a scientific reason why the points on the meridians are so effective? Correct. As I said, uh, going back to the example of astronomy, uh, people look at the stars and they make connections and they saw images. So they saw a bear and they saw a lion and they saw a giant. So they called that the constellation of Orion. Now, the, 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 the giant doesn't exist. It just exists in our imagination. However, the stars that form that image in the sky, they are very real. They, they exist. So meridians develop uh, based on observation, very good observation, and they can be looked at a combination of peripheral nerve pathways and arterial pathways, as well as uh, refer pain patterns, uh, myofascial uh, refer pain patterns. Therefore, the fact that the ancient clinicians found the access to the nervous system, and then they, they just connected this axis, makes it forever green approach because the effective neurostimulation sites were many of them long time ago discovered. And the reason why acupuncture worked was not because of the explanations that they allocated to that stimulation, but because of the fact that the loci that they selected to stimulate are direct access to the nervous system. So that, that is the value, uh, the, the great value that we inherited from, from the uh, ancient clinicians is that they already discover a number of uh, favorable accesses to the nervous system. Now, what we've done going beyond that is to redefine the concept of uh, acupuncture point and instead talk about neurostimulation sites or neuroreactive sites. 
and the neuroreactive sites go beyond the current maps. There are 361 uh, regular uh, acupuncture points in the 14 meridians that have points. However, in clinical practice, we use hundreds of other neurostimulation sites based on categorizations such as the mechanoreceptors uh, within the muscle that we know that they are preferential access to the spinal cord, for instance, uh, muscle spindles, Golgi tendon organs, Pacinian corpuscles, Rufinian corpuscles. We have a lot more knowledge now about the innervation of the joint, uh, the type of receptors, type 2 on the ligament, which are shared with the Golgi tendon organs, uh, 1B, which are shared as well with, with these uh, structures. So we have now uh, a new map, if you wish, that doesn't require a particular drawing. It's like seeing a picture of the sky with no constellations. You just see stars. Well, we look at the body, we see nerves, we see receptor sites, we see specialized structures that, that form uh, encapsulated receptors, and we know where to find them, and we know manually how to explore the, the body in uh, situations of dysfunction and select the, the best access to the nervous system based on this, uh, on this double approach, palpation, mechanosensitivity evaluation, and neuromotor testing. You briefly mentioned electroacupuncture. Can you go into some more detail about that, how you started using it and what makes it effective? Electroacupuncture is definitely the biggest revolution, I think, uh, apart from the conceptual framework that I just described. The body is electric, there's no, no question. All cells operate as uh, micro batteries. There is polarity between the internal, the intercellular environment and the extracellular. The uh, body is full of uh, ions, meaning electrically charged particles sodium, potassium, calcium, magnesium being the four principal ions. And uh, the nervous system operates as a specialized glandular system with the ability to change electricity into chemical secretions and chemical secretions into electricity. That's the process, uh, different processes that we call transduction, which would be changing a signal like a mechanical pressure into a electrical signal. That electrical signal will reach a synapsis and in that synapsis will become chemical and that chemical on the postsynaptic uh, area will become electrical again and so on and so forth. So this game of biochemistry, electricity is the name of the game of the nervous system. So the addition of electricity, whether deployed with acupuncture needles or not, we have to talk about electrotherapy. Uh, it's also very ancient, uh, started in Egypt uh, with the use of uh, electric eels. So ancient people also noticed that electricity uh, was powerful, did something in the body. And since the 60s where uh, electricity was applied to acupuncture needles, we've learned a lot and not only in the field of uh, acupuncture, but as I said in general, in the field of uh, electrostimulation, uh, of the body. So what we've learned is that different frequencies and different uh, intensities recruit different 
nerve fibers and produce activation that favors the secretion of certain neurotransmitters. And this has enhanced our ability to somehow, I don't like to use the word manipulate because uh, indicates too much uh, power that we don't have, but to encourage a specific um, mechanisms to take place. For instance, we learned that a stimulation of uh, thick myelinated fibers with encapsulated receptors like the one uh, represented here. So all the fibers that deal with exteroception and proprioception, those fibers, before they continue to the uh, upper levels of the nervous system via the dorsal column nuclei, they have an inhibitory effect on the nociceptive signals that enter the same segment. This is something that originally was speculated by uh, Melsack and Wall and was called the gate control theory, but <clears throat> the years later was proven to be accurate, which is the fact that the nervous system processes preferentially information from non-noxious neurons versus uh, nociceptive neurons. And the neurotransmitter involved in this particular mechanism is GABA, gamma-aminobutyric acid. So gamma-aminobutyric acid has a peak secretion when an electrical frequency of 80 Hz is applied to these fibers. Now this is a phenomenal discovery because that explains first of all why the TENS machines work and also tell us where uh, the best placement for the electrodes or the needles is in these cases, which has to be in the areas segmentally related to the nociceptive receptor fields that are sending those nociceptive signals. And in this way, we have developed a whole knowledge of uh, the different frequencies, the different neurotransmitters. Interestingly enough, uh, a lot of this originated in China by a researcher called Ji Sheng Han, uh, who was uh, not uh, very well received uh, at the beginning in uh, his own country because he was taking away some of the traditional um, ideas and beliefs, but was giving us this ability. So we know now also that certain frequencies produce accommodation and can only be used for a short period of time. That's the problem with tense. Tense wear off after few months. Uh, we know that low frequencies produce uh, a specific activation of um, central areas such as the periaqueductal gray, the thalamus, and that this effect uh, is not limited uh, to uh, on time. On the contrary, repeated treatments seem to produce longer effects. This is one of the best pieces of research uh, currently existing, uh, meta-analysis is the, the empirical evidence that uh, uh, electroacupuncture treatments tend to last. And the current uh, agreed idea is that 10, 12 treatments applied weekly, within you know, a week apart, they tend to last one to two years when dealing with uh, pain problems. Some of it is because of, of this segmental modulation, but some of it is also because of this supraspinal modulation that electricity enhances uh, enormously. So I always use the same metaphor, easy to understand, is the comparison. The traditional acupuncture is the bicycle, electroacupuncture is the motorbike with, with an engine. So 
usage for long-term changes and the amount of acupuncture required with electroacupuncture is less? Well, depending on the field, uh, as you know, there is a lot of research on fields other than analgesia, although analgesia mm -hmm. seems to be the, the most popular. However, the greatest value of acupuncture at the end of the day may not be on analgesia, but on the other set of conditions that uh, we include neuromotor conditions, uh, let's say Parkinson or um, nerve palsy, that uh, like fascial uh, Bell's palsy, etc., or visceral problems, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, dysmenorrhea, or problems of the brain stem, nausea and vomiting, perioperative nausea and vomiting, seroxtomia, big field of research with, with high quality uh, studies and uh, all uh, proven uh, the, the value of acupuncture for uh, people uh, with seroxtomia, dry mouth after radiation therapy from cancer, extremely valuable. So there are uh, many other areas of uh, application of acupuncture that are currently not uh, yet as popular. In terms of analgesia, I have to go back to our initial discussion and say that the first uh, the first problem treating things and then trying to standardize treatments is that you have to define how the dysfunction is. And pain problems carry this sensitization, which means neuroplastic changes take place at synapses, at the spinal cord. Neuroplastic changes take place at receptor uh, fields in the cortex. We know that from functional MRI studies. We know that from animal models very well. And therefore, the deeper the sensitization, the more prolonged intervention will be required. The nervous system is neuroplastic. It requires repetition. It's like learning a lesson. You have to study more than once, more than twice. If you really, really want to learn it, you have to study it many times. Same thing. If you want to teach the neural pathways to uh, preferentially behave in a certain way, you have to repeat the non-noxious message from a peripheral area to that segment to the brain. And uh, this is what's called bottom-up modulation. But also research shows the importance and necessity to combine this bottom-up regulation with top-down. And this is what we can call the reflex relaxation response, imagery, cognitive behavioral therapy, placebo, nocebo, everything that indicates the value of activation of upper centers in the modulation of what's going on at the spinal cord and at the receptor field. So it has to be a double approach. Acupuncture cannot be looked at as a single isolated intervention, in my opinion, needs to be integrated 100% of the time with something else. And that something else could be manual techniques, exercise rehab, other modalities, electrical or not, uh, pharmacological, nutritional, behavioral. It's a multi-dimensional, multi-pronged approach. And this is also part of the challenge with the research that in clinical practice is like we do studies on drugs, but then we don't know what the interaction, the real interaction is 
of the 10 drugs that a particular person are taking because it's impossible to do a study on that. So we go by our best estimate based on what we know. So I think we should apply the same standard, gold standard, to everything in medicine. We accept that, that uh, polymedication is uh, appropriate when the perceived benefit uh, is higher than the risk, and we should accept the same, that we have to combine, integrate many interventions, and we may not be able to uh, allocate the success ratio to particularly to one or the other. So I'm not going to say this is better than the other. I say current research supports multidisciplinary interventions for the treatment of pain. And that is what's rendering the best results. You touched on some lesser known populations that can benefit from acupuncture. Are there any populations who you would avoid doing acupuncture on? Well, certainly personal preference would be the, the, most, uh, the most important exclusion criteria. In general, neurofunctional techniques are uh, universally valid because they are based on stimulating the nervous system and leveraging existing mechanisms. Therefore, if you have a, a, a functioning nervous system, you have the ability to uh, stimulate this nervous system. From that standpoint, there are very few absolute uh, contraindications. I would say that the people who would benefit the most from these techniques obviously are the healthier people who have suffered some dysregulation, but they, they still have their mechanisms of regulation uh, intact or fully uh, available. As you progress towards the, the side of, uh, let's say, neurodegenerative diseases, uh, problems of the nervous system where you lose uh, permanently functionality, you're not going to be able to gain as much. So I, I say that acupuncture distinctly is good for, let's say, movement disorders in, in normal people or active people in a sports medicine. That would be one group. Then for uh, visceral disorders, uh, miscellaneous that, that have no strong anatomical underlying foundation, but are mostly functional, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, dysmenorrhea, etc. So that's another really good group. And then a miscellaneous, as I mentioned before, in, uh, in the support of cancer patients, very important because it's a group of the population uh, uh, who suffers uh, particularly. And, you know, acupuncture could be part of, of the, the tools to help this group. And aging population, the elderly, we lose as we get older, we lose uh, regulatory abilities. So having something that optimizes the existing ability to uh, regulate, I think is, is of great value. What can a patient expect to feel during an acupuncture session? Well, that will depend on uh, who does it and uh, mm -hmm. how it's done. If, if it's a more of a traditional approach, they, they should expect to experience some discomfort uh, because traditional approaches uh, require the, to elicit that the chi sensation. If it's a neurofunctional practitioner, like such as the ones uh, who train at McMaster uh, or some other styles uh, of acupuncture that are painless, the patient should expect to be aware that, uh, you know, these little fine needles are 
put into the body but should not have any significant discomfort is something that surprises people when you see someone with 12, 18, 20 needles, you, you think this person is going to be in great discomfort. But remember, these needles don't have a cutting edge. They're very thin. They have a round tip. And uh, rarely there is blood when you take them out, meaning there is very little tissue destruction. So the person typically, once goes through the first couple of treatments and the novelty of the stimulation, in general, uh, it varies. A group of people feel immediate results uh, feel uh, relaxation depending on the on the focus if it's an athlete then we're working more on, on neuromotor performance then we're using a different kind of stimulator and the person will feel the muscles jumping and contracting and after it feels strong if it's a more uh, systemic regulation the person will feel relaxed and other group will not feel right away anything but they will have a delayed response which is very well supported by again research and and uh, consists of uh, modulation of cortisol secretion via this hpa axis uh, uh, which takes 24 hours uh, or, or longer to produce also there is the cholinergic anti-inflammatory reflex that's trigger via vagal nerve stimulation that also takes uh, 24 hours so some people experience the best results a day to days and, and obviously it's like training if you go to the gym once you're not gonna feel much indeed you probably feel worse after but uh, as you repeat that the upregulatory mechanisms that you're engaging they produce uh, the, the benefit so it, it varies and very veteran patients they are so uh, already conditioned because acupuncture can be also looked at a conditioning therapy that uh, before you finish putting the needles and connecting the electricity they are already asleep that's also something uh, that's that's very valuable you're training people's physiology to put itself in a state of lower sympathetic activation, higher parasympathetic activation, which is very beneficial, similar to the reflex relaxation or meditation, other interventions like that. And how would you explain the benefits of acupuncture to your patient? Well, you explain to your patients first what's your view of their dysfunction. I think that's everything starts once again with how you see the problem. And once you, you tell them that you see the problem as a dysregulation of the nervous system more so than as a permanent structural or architectural change, that already is, is therapeutic, then you explain the, that the mechanisms that you're trying to uh, leverage are these ones that we mentioned before that you're going to try to change things uh, locally or on the receptor fields that you identify as dysfunctional and that you're going to try to change uh, the information that reaches the, the spinal cord and that you're going to try also to change the way the, the brain is operating. So you're going to explain in, in simple language the current uh, understanding of the nerve transmission and the pain experience and the levels of the pain experience. And, and then you're going to just take uh, feedback and learn together what is the particular response that this person has to, to the treatment. 
And are there any risks to acupuncture? Absolutely. No good thing has uh, no bad side. <laughs> and definitely you're going through the skin, you're getting uh, into uh, deeper anatomical areas and, and you have the ability to then cause damage, small, but cause damage uh, at certain structures. The summary of the adverse effects that have been linked to uh, acupuncture interventions, uh, the number one would be the accidental puncture of the visceral pleura that covers the lung and the production of a pneumothorax. That is the, the worst, most uh, described um, adverse effect. It's a very small, very small percentage, but however, needs, needs to be uh, recognized and needs to be explained. It can be avoided with proper palpatory skills, proper uh, techniques. Then there are a number of uh, adverse events uh, related to vascular and nerve damage. That uh, I think is uh, corrected in, in those who practice painless acupuncture because uh, if you don't cause any nociception, it's impossible that you can damage an artery or, or a nerve. But there are few instances, few, you know, hundreds of cases in the literature of, of causing uh, uh, usually transient damage. But uh, yeah, and there are even a few instances of individuals who died as a result of uh, an acupuncture treatment. One from uh, perforation of the pericardium and uh, bleeding and a cardiac tamponade due to this. Uh, again, was a faulty technique and things that, frankly, I don't think will happen in our environment. We're talking about world literature, but most of these reports come from cases in Asia, uh, not in, uh, in our countries, uh, Europe uh, and North America. I think pneumothorax is the worst can happen and uh, transient discomfort due to a little uh, touching of, of a nerve. Did a patient have a negative reaction? Negative reaction, if you uh, include, for instance, a vasovagal uh, response, few, obviously, that's a risk. Whenever you have an intervention that touches the nervous system, a vasovagal uh, reaction is possible and it occurs. But in general, it's, it's just a very transient and uh, is followed by an improvement of the sympathetic. It's, it's almost like uh, cleaning your sympathetic nervous system so people are not bothered by that and it generally doesn't repeat the, the person who has a vasovagal doesn't have a second one it usually is uh, due to a number of circumstances not having eaten uh, for several hours uh, being under stress etc negative negative reactions uh, frankly I, I in in our environment uh, with the practitioners we work uh, I, I would say minimal minimal I want to quickly touch on sports. Uh, you mentioned that you treat some high-level athletes. How do you use this approach when treating athletes? Well, this, this is my, my field. This is really what's uh, exciting for me. Uh, in the athletic population, the use is slightly more sophisticated than I described so far. And uh, basically, we try to optimize neuromotor activation 
in a very detailed and, and global manner. For instance, if we're talking uh, about people who run or skate or uh, use their lower extremities, we're going to examine the posterior chain, the posterolateral chain, the anterior chain, all the kinetic chains in detail. We're going to then identify the muscles that are not fully activated and uh, we're going to use, uh, as I mentioned before, a special device uh, that produces a 10 hertz uh, electrical current and we're going to force the muscle to contract and therefore we're going to uh, restore segmental uh, activity uh, at that level. The athletes find this uh, approach very beneficial, it makes them feel strong, uh, it makes them feel connected uh, because when we're doing this uh, forceful motor activation, we are at the same time engaging all the proprioceptors uh, within the muscle. And we don't see it, it's invisible, but we're also contributing to a better uh, perfusion of the area by modulating vasomotor, uh, vasomotor control. Uh, so this, this is the, the big focus on sports, neuromotor system. Most of the time we are not dealing with uh, pain problems per se, although athletes obviously they have aches and, and pains. And as we correct these neuromotor inhibitions, the little pain problems uh, disappear. The, the second area that uh, we focus uh, with athletes, but that's done uh, more manually than with the needles, is in restoring movement capabilities. So the same concept in the kinetic chain. If you have a, a little restriction of the accessory movements of a joint, let's say tibiofemoral rotation, that is going to decrease your, your ability to adapt uh, to uh, absorption of uh, reaction forces via the coupling between pronosupination and tibiofemoral rotation. So if you restore two degrees more and then immediately your functional level is higher. And uh, how do we detect that? Well, via manual uh, examination and then we use qualitative and quantitative biomechanical analysis. If it's someone who is doing something that's measurable, let's say a pitcher, is, is throwing, we measure speed, so we know that the drop of the speed represents a combination of these two, uh, loss of movement capabilities and loss of full neuromotor uh, control. Those are the two areas that we put our focus. And finally, we help the athlete regulate sympathetic nervous system, which is always highly activated and that, that requires a return to a calm state to allow the uh, parasympathetic to predominate for the anabolic uh, uh, reactions that need to take place in order to uh, adapt to training. So those are the three areas, uh, neuromotor control, movement capabilities and uh, sympathetic uh, modulation. And can you share a memorable story about using this approach in an athlete? Oh, definitely. Uh, many Many good stories uh, over the years. Uh, for instance, a female athlete, the 200 meter runners, uh, it was Edmonton World Championships 2001, had qualified, however, a few weeks before, had a hamstring injury. So this uh, athlete was brought to the championship because, you know, didn't have anything else to do and uh, to get treatment. And they asked me to, to see her, so I Examined the first day, which was a few days before the championship, 
And uh, the first thing is that I disagree with the diagnosis, <laughs> which is not uh, unusual. I thought that her hamstrings were fine. It was an adductor magnus problem. Now, deep muscles characteristically are impossible to reach with the hands, and that's where the needles have tremendous value. So I use 75 millimeter uh, needles, and I uh, inserted eight such needles on the area of the adductor magnus that had a little strain, nothing more than that, and started using a low uh, electrical frequency. After the first treatment, she says, oh, I feel like 80% better. Can I go and train today, do something? Yeah, sure, go and, and move. And to make a long story short, uh, three days later, she feels that she can compete because she had qualified she competed and she ended up winning a silver medal. So from not being able to compete, the technology, both the diagnostic technology and the treatment technology, where we were able to deploy electrons to a very deep structure made possible for that very well-trained uh, organism to become uh, not only adaptable, but highly functional because the training had been done, the metabolic capabilities of the muscles were there. It was just a problem of cleaning the area and uh, facilitating that, uh, improving perfusion again, and normalizing the connection between that muscle and the spinal cord. And how can people find out more about you? Well, we've been doing uh, this training of professionals for 20 years. Uh, next year is our 20th anniversary. And you can find all the information at uh, www.macmasteracupuncture.com, mcmasteracupuncture.com. And there you have a few videos as well where you can see uh, what we do, how we approach our, uh, our training in a very systematic and uh, physiology and anatomy-based uh, manner. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Functional First Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a rating on the iTunes store and stay tuned each month for a new episode.